0: And the volunteers, and the sound and media team, thanks everybody that's came to help out so early, early. Um, hello to everybody. Uh, my name is Luke, for those who don't know. Uh, my boss is in Sri Lanka, he's leading a mission there, so I'm in charge. <laughs> Yay! I'm going to tell Armour the first weekend that he was gone how many new people there were, but uh, no, joking. <laughs> It's funny. So um, I'm very excited today. We are continuing our theme this month. We've been talking about Jesus in the Old Testament. Let's give a round of applause to Blaine who drew that. Eh? That's pretty impressive. Eh? Yeah. Did you guys know that Jesus is in the Old Testament? That's what we've been exploring this month. So I started off in the on the first Sunday of the month talking about the tabernacle and how Jesus is the fulfillment of the tabernacle. And, um, and then Jesus, uh, not Jesus, Amu, my boss Amu, <laughs> the weekend after he spoke about prophecy, one of the most powerful proofs that we have for Jesus is that prophecy that was spoken about in the Old Testament, classic passage of scripture, Isaiah 53, that is what Amu preached on, um, is then fulfilled in the person of Jesus in the New Testament. Isaiah speaks of the person and it gets really, the prophecies get very, very specific Um, If you read, for instance, Psalm 22, they talk about how they mocked Jesus, how they divided his clothes um, and cast lots for his clothes, and then those very specific things are fulfilled in the person of Jesus in the New Testament. And then uh, last week, um, Anna Marie and Marchant also gave a great sermon themselves. Today, I'm going to be talking about... Hell, sin, and judgment. Ooh, <laughs> but I want to start with a disclaimer that the topic of hell stands in contrast to the love that God has for us, and I, and that's going to be. I'm going to, I'm giving you the punchline of the sermon before we go, because I know that this is a very difficult topic to talk about. It's it's very contentious. When I was doing my homework for this for this sermon, there's so many opinions that are divided, but but I think one thing that we can agree on is that God's love for us is immense. And I'm going to talk to you about how uh, the, the story of hell, essentially judgment starts in the Old Testament, and how God's love in the person of Jesus Christ fulfills the requirements for judgment in the New Testament. Are you with me? Okay, so Whatever preconceived ideas that you have about the topic, I'm just asking you to shelve it. I'm not going to call myself an expert on the topic, but this is, I just want to emphasize that by the end of this sermon, we're going to be talking about how the to- this topic speaks of the magnitude of God's love for us. Are you with me? Okay, we're in agreement. Fantastic. Okay, so our story with, with hell starts with this place. You can show this picture. This looks like hell, right? <laughs> it's green. This is actually in Jerusalem. This is called the the Valley of of Hinnom, and um, this is, from this Hebrew word, word we actually derive the word hell. Okay. And uh, this, this, it was this very valley that hell was named after. It doesn't look <laughs> like it today. There's a family in the park hanging in the shade. Um, so hell doesn't seem so bad anymore. Um, but, but this is the historical place where the Canaanites, when, before Abraham came into the land, the Canaanites were there. And this is the valley in which they performed child sacrifices. So there's. so just go to the next slide because if we want to talk about hell our picture of how the way that we know about hell how Jesus referred to hell all essentially started with the Canaanites and what they did in this valley because the the Canaanites they they served the god Moloch and um, and they they worshipped him with child sacrifices, not just human sacrifices, God detested human sacrifices, but he detested even more you can imagine child sacrifices and so they performed these sacrifices in their in the valley and their view of sacrifice was was this that that essentially we're we're innocent and um and the more innocent people that we sacrifice, so you know there's those old. Cliches in movies that we sacrifice a virgin to the volcano, or something like that, and it's and it's kind of built into this sort of thinking that that we're innocent if we sacrifice the innocent because God actually wants the blood of innocence, then uh, we're going to earn their favor and we're going to get rain and we're going to get you know more children and and we'll earn the favor of God and this was their their mentality and. Uh, Kind of also gives you an insight as to why God wanted the Israelites to come in and wipe out these nations. Um, and just on a side note, every nation that has subsequently practiced human sacrifice has been wiped from the face of the earth. Which also gives you an insight into how God sees abortion, anyway, but that's a different topic. But in, in Jeremiah 7, verse 31 to 33, the Israelites also fell into this practice, um, and this, so this was years later on, um, after the Canaanites. The Israelites picked up this practice, and this is, of course, when when God brought about His judgment on Israel and sold them into slavery. And that's a whole different topic, but but essentially, this this valley became the picture that we know of of hell. In other words, hell is such a terrible, 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 terrible place that the most terrible, terrible, terrible things are done there. And that that is kind of the imagery that is left with us. But in all of this, God sends Abraham. And um, so I want you to open up your Bibles to Genesis 22. We're going to read a very interesting story about Abraham. So now Abraham, he's from the land of Ur, and God told him, okay, I want you to pack up everything that you that you have, and I want you to go to Canaan. You know that land where they do child sacrifices? Yeah, Abraham, I want you to go there. And uh and you're gonna go and possess that land, and your ancestors are gonna possess that land. So Abraham, being the man that he is, decides that he's gonna he's gonna go there and God gives him a promise. You can read about this. In earlier chapters from genesis twenty two but of course God gives Abraham a promise because Abraham was an old man in the form of a son. God gives him a promise and says that through this son, your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the heaven as the sands on this on this on the shore and uh, and they will possess the land, and uh, I will bless the nations through your son and so this is all good and well for Abraham, and then one day God comes to Abraham and tells him to do something really weird, and we're going to read about that right now. Okay, so Genesis 22. If you're there, you can go there on your devices or your Bible, whatever it is. Let's read, get reading. So after these things, God tested Abraham and said to Abraham, and he said, "Here I am." He said, "Take your son, your only son, Isaac." whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning. Wait. No protest. No nothing. (laughs) No, Abraham was an old man. Isaac was a teenager, but teenagers, even teenagers, you expect to protest at something. (laughs) But um, there's no... Abraham doesn't protest. But now think of this. He's come to the land of Canaan. These child sacrifices that are happening. God wakes him up and says, Go sacrifice your child. Imagine what Canaan's thinking imagine what Abraham's thinking. Has God brought me here to worship this God? Is is he the is he the God that that of this land? can Can you think what he's thinking? Like you can imagine that he's walking up the road to this to this mountain about to sacrifice his son, and um he's like, "What's going on here?" So he doesn't protest, kind of gives you an insight as to why he doesn't protest. Saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God had told him on the third day. Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to the young men, stay here with the donkey and the boy, I will go there and worship. And worship, very commonly in the Old Testament, included sacrifice. And very often did you not come and worship and offer something to God. Um, Also gives us an insight into today's worship. What are we offering God when we worship? But that's a different sermon. And uh, come again to you. Verse six, and Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his eyes on Isaac his son. I just I always whenever I read this, I just think this is so funny. Not only am I about to sacrifice you, but you're gonna carry the wood up the mountain. <laughs> okay, cool. Uh-huh. But um it's also who else carried up wood? Right. Okay, can you this is the this is the first inclination that we have of the prototype story that would eventually become the story of Jesus. And, if, of course, if you know this story, you're familiar with it. Um, and he took in his hand fire and the knife, um, fire, remember this? So that they went with them together, and Isaac said to his father, My father, and he said, Here am I, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. <laughs> Why do you have that knife, Father? Why do you have that fire? It sounds like red riding hood, but this is just my own brain. Ignore me. God will provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. Verse 9, when they came to the place of God, Of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in the order, bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here here am I. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God. Isn't this amazing? So... So Abraham comes to this land, this land where they do child Sarah, this detestable land, right, that God hates because of what they've done. And he hates it so much that he's going to take it from the most unrighteous of people and give it to his people. And Abraham arrives on the scene, and it seems like God's telling him to do exactly what the people in that land do, right? And so Abraham gets to the top of the mountain God intervenes, and in that, He shows that He is different from all other gods. Think of the word "holy." What does "holy" mean? Set apart. I'm I'm set apart from the other gods. I'm not like the other gods. The other gods, they're gonna take the innocent and sacrifice for the guilty. Okay, but but we're gonna we're gonna flip that around. We're gonna take we 're going to take a lamb and we 're going to sacrifice it for the guilty see i 'm going to make a way, and the thing is that that Abraham understood something very very well is that God was justified to ask him for his son. God was justified to ask him for everything and that 's why Abraham went up the mountain because he knew who God was he knew that he owed God, and this is this is a A very big difference when we just go to the next slide, that Abraham's view of of sacrifice was fundamentally different from the view of the Canaanites. See, God, he had this view that God is just to ask of our lives because we're not innocent. The Canaanites believed that they were sacrificing innocence, but but we know that we're not innocent. But even though that we're we're not innocent. God still provides an alternative sacrifice. And so sacrifice in the Old Testament did not become to earn God's favor. Instead, it became to atone for sin. That was what sacrifice was born for. That that the ultimate point and end goal of sacrifice was that our sin would be atoned for. You see, and this, this is something when, when you're discussing works, a lot of people don't understand because we try to work for god's favor right yeah that's what that's what religion is that's what false we try and do works we try and do good things to earn god's favor but god's favor cannot be earned it's it's given freely to his children right and instead our sacrifices are for appeasement not for favor we cannot work to earn God's favor. There's nothing that we can do to earn God's favor, right? And instead, we're in this place where, as, as children of God, we have everything that that pertains to life and life in abundance. We, we cannot earn it. And then to get into a, a route of trying to earn it is essentially falling into the same trap that the Canaanites did. I'm, I'm going to try work to earn God's favor. You can't. You can't do it. You can't earn it. Okay. It is done. Thank you. Okay. So I want to go to Isaiah. Um, oh, I think I made a mistake here. And no, I didn't. Fantastic. No mistakes. I want to go to Isaiah 53. Let's try and see if we can pick up the same themes here. will um, preached on this. Um, two weeks ago, so I'm not going to spend too much time on Isaiah 53. If you if you're wanting to catch up on the sermons of the of the month, uh, they've been awesome. I might be biased. I think they've been awesome. Um, we have a podcast that you can find on Apple Podcasts, Shofar George sermons, or you can find them um, on the SoundCloud app if you've got an Android phone. Um, so you can catch up on all the sermons. So Amu does a great job on Isaiah 53. I'm just going to read a portion of it. Let's see if we can pick up some of the themes here. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and, and afflicted. So obviously this is this is a prophecy of Jesus. He's borne our griefs and our sorrows. So this is this is Isaac on the altar, that God has asked for. God has asked for Isaac, he's going to be on the altar, so there's going to be fire, there's going to be a knife, somebody's going to die, blood is going to be shed, something's going to burn, right? And so when Isaiah comes and he prophesies of this person that would eventually come, that he has borne our griefs, he has borne our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Instead of us being smitten by God and afflicted, it would be Jesus. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. The word chastement appears a couple of times in the, in the Old Testament, and every context with the word chastement is God who brings justice. It's not a random sense of punishment. This is God who brings justice. So that word, testament, is in a sense not only just judgment, but specifically that God brings it, that brought us peace. And with these stripes we are healed, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. This, of course, we'll see echoed in Romans 3, verse 23. For all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. That's you. (laughs) And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, verse 7, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Okay, This is this ram that was provided in the place of Isaac. Right, It's the same sort of imagery. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressors of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. They made his grave with the wicked. So also in this valley of Henan, this, this place of, of hell that we, where they did the child sacrifices, along the edges of the valley, they would bore into the hilltops and make graves there. Um, and funny enough, that's actually where they buried the, the rich and the powerful. And so in verse 9, they say that he made his grave with the wicked with a rich man in his death, and of course this kind of alludes to the fact that that Jesus went and got the keys for us in hell, although he had he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. there's this part where he's innocent, yet it was the will of God to crush him. He has put him to grief and this 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 is usually the part where people get lost because here it says in Isaiah 53 that it was God's will that Jesus be crushed. That's a little bit of a difficult thing to get around, right? That, that God would want to crush Jesus. Why would he want to crush him? And we're going to get, we're going to, get to that a little bit later. But I want you to keep that in, in mind because that, that's really important. Okay, so let's go to another very interesting story. Fantastic parable that Jesus tells but before we get there i just want to make a side note on metaphors because we're going to we you read a lot about metaphors and and hell is is described as a metaphor so there's there's two main ways that Jesus refers to hell or describes hell he describes it as a as a fire and then he describes it as eternal darkness okay and um that's kind of ironic because the question you've got to ask is how can a place that's eternally on fire also be eternally dark doesn't make sense right and so when we when we're reading about hell the, um jesus does refer to it as a metaphor but in no means does that mean that it's any better than what we think it is you see just like in genesis 3 if you were if you were here when i first started the series also spoke about metaphors just like in Genesis, there's a lot of metaphors used to describe Genesis but, or the Garden of Eden, but, but Eden is a very, very strange place. We don't entirely know what's going on there. We know that, that God dwells there and it seems to be this strange place that connected heaven and earth. And so these metaphors are used, but they're used in order to describe a place that is very, very difficult to comprehend in a way that we will understand, right? And so I think, I think you can agree that, that Scripture says that, that like when we talk about heaven, no mind has seen, no eye no, no eye seen, no mind can comprehend that which God has prepared for us. In other words, the, the magnitude and the glory of heaven is so beyond our comprehension that the best that God can do to describe it to us in a way that we will comprehend is to use metaphors, and so, often you'll hear an objection that, oh, hell's just a metaphor. It's like, that doesn't make it any better. What what we would need to read into this is that hell is such a terrible place that is so beyond our comprehension. Okay? It is beyond our comprehension. It is a place of fire, and it is a place of darkness. So fire usually denotes um, sacrifice, judgment, torment, and darkness is associated with separation isolation loneliness in other words and, and i must just also mention that this is jesus himself in these verses describing describing how jesus des- talks about hell more than any other character in the bible and this place is so beyond torment so beyond what we can comprehend it is so separated from from god we cannot comprehend it. That's that's the terribleness of this. And so we're going to read about a metaphor in the next passage of Scripture. So you guys can turn to Luke 16. Are you guys with me? I I'm, I'm promise it gets better. <laughs> this is a tough topic, I know. We've got to chat about this. Matthew, Mark, Luke, chapter 16. So this is a very interesting parable because it's the only parable in the Bible, the only recorded parable, should I say, where one of the characters in the parable has a proper name. No other parable does Jesus assign a name to a character. And in this Bible, the, the character has the name God will help. Okay? And so the the other interesting thing about this this parable is that jesus talks about hell and he talks about the torment of it and uh, and so what we've got to do is is almost like hell is contrasted with heaven the magnificence of heaven is in stands in contrast to the magnific- to the terror of hell so we've got to look at this rich man who isn't given a name and is in, in in hebrew culture if you were not given a name, then your significance and your importance was taken away. Satan himself actually isn't even given a name. Uh, the Hebrew Bible actually refers to him as the Satan. Satan means opposition. The Hebrew Bible just calls him the opposition. He's actually never given a name. Even the name Lucifer is a, a name that's derived from, it's a Latin name. It's not actually in the Bible at all. And so, essentially, even the Hebrew writers did not give Satan a value or a significance. Interesting to think about. And so when we get to the rich man, he's he's not given a name, and that stands in contrast to the other person who is given a name. Okay, so let's let's read this. Verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen. Purple. You guys know what the significance of purple means? Donkey. Yes, I can always count on another word. So purple denotes royalty, right? And fine linen, and and who feasted sumptuously every day. That's a great word, sumptuously. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. So it's not just that there was a poor man, but this poor man was at the gate of the rich man. In other words, if the rich man left his home, um, he'd see the poor man. You can't get around the fact that the rich man knew that there was somebody at his gate. Okay, you'd literally have to walk past him every time he went out and in his home. So the the argument that maybe he didn't know, maybe he's was innocent, was 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 gone. Verse twenty-two: The poor man died and was carried by by um, the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in the flame. At no point, still, at no point does this rich man repent. He doesn't even talk to the poor man. The poor man that was at his gate every day, and instead he talks to Abraham. Now remember, Abraham is the story, was in the story that we just read. Why does he talk to Abraham? Why is Abraham in the story? Because Abraham was the one who initiated this idea that God provides. God provides an alternative means for the payment of my sins, right? This was Abraham who instituted these sacrifices on on instruction by God that, yes, I'm guilty and I deserve punishment, but God has provided another way, right? God has provided another way. And so he appeals to Abraham, hey, Abraham, you of all people understand the concept of the guilty being provided for that they don't have to share the punishment of their sins, you should understand this. You of all people, you that were the one who was about to sacrifice your son. God provided a scapegoat, right? And so listen to what Abraham says to him. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in, the, in like manner bad things. But now he's comforted here, and you are in anguish. Even Abraham cannot help him. In other words, at some point, we are going to die, and at some point, we're going to be beyond help. There will come a time. This is what Jesus is saying in the parable, and Lazarus, who is called, God will help. Not even he can help you. Not even the help of God will go out to you. So when we're talking about hell, we have to talk about the seriousness of it, that yes, God provides, but at some point, is going to be a place of no return. That is something that we have to face. That is something that we have to think about. There's something that has got to be aware of us. That we've got to, we've got to, we can't get around that. Okay. At some point, it's going to, to be too late. And now listen to what, what Jesus is saying in this parable. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed. This, of course, represents, um, sin in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send to send him to my father's help. Send Lazarus. God will help. Send the help of God to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that they may warn them, lest they also come into the place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is ironic because this is Jesus speaking. And of course, who, who is crucified and, and is risen from the dead? Jesus himself. And Jesus is saying, hey, if you, if you don't come to terms with what the prophets, Moses and the prophets told you, it doesn't matter if I come. Because why is that because the prophets spoke of Jesus if you don't believe the prophets who spoke of Jesus you're not going to believe me when I rise when I rise from the dead. See we can't just cut off the Old Testament because it's because it's inconvenient. we have to deal with it we have to deal with these difficult difficult topics and I'm by no means trying to pass over them as being light I'm by no means trying to Wipe away the seriousness or the difficulty of comprehending these topics. They're very difficult to comprehend and to work through. But we've got to come to this reality where we have sinned. We've fallen short of the glory of God. And at some point, there's going to be a a time where we will die and we'll be too late. And we will either be with God for eternity or we will be in hell for eternity. We've got to make up this mind. We've got to we've got to take the word of God and we're gonna go, do I take seriously what is written in here? maybe it's just too difficult. Right? I, I don't understand. I, I preached a sermon in porch last week and I and I spoke about how people idolise relationships. And very often people would choose a relationship above the purpose of God or on their lives. And I got an email this week telling me that that this guy was really struggling with this idea because you know he, he's got a fiance, and this fiance is everything to him, and he can't he just can't bear to lose her. And I had to, I had to have this also this talk. It's like, hey, there's going to come a time, even if you marry her, where your marriage is going to come to an end because you'll die, right? It's not eternal. Don't trade what is eternal for something that is temporary. And by all means, please get, I love marriage, I'm married. It's fantastic. But the point is this, that there's going to come a time where, where we, we have to reckon with what we did with this. Are we going to believe it or are we going to cast it aside? Are we going to take seriously what Moses and the prophets said? Because here's the thing we can't even take seriously what Moses wrote and Jesus said this to the Pharisees as well he says how can you believe what i'm saying to you if you don't even believe what Moses wrote about me all right okay i promise you it gets better from now on so all of this i want to put in it it this is this is difficult difficult to think about but but the good news enters in here this is where This is where Jesus comes and starts to make a difference. Okay, I want Corinne. Corinne's going to paint something for me. Okay, Luke 13, verse 6 to 9. There's this very, very short parable. It's kind of, you you miss it, but it's a great parable, and it gives us this, this story that what's going on. There's a lot packed into this. And he told and he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, "Look, for 3 years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground?" And he answered him, "Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure." Then if, I, then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. So who's this person? This is Jesus. God comes for the day of judgment. And he says, these people aren't bearing fruit. And Jesus comes in the midst of this and says, okay, I'm going to stand in between God's wrath and God's judgment. I'm gonna be the one i'm gonna hold it back. I'm gonna say, God, give me time. let me work with people. God, you are just, and you are just to look for 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 payment, but give me time. This is the person Jesus. You see, if we go back to the Garden of Eden, we find we find adam and eve and 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 very often we we must understand that. Let me try to put this in context. Adam and Eve walked with God. They knew God, right? They knew, every, they, they probably had a consciousness that is above ours. They were perfected in their being. They, they, they cannot cry innocent. They knew him fully, even as they were fully known. They walked with him. They ate with him. They communed with him. And so they decided to sin against God. And very often we, we kind of wonder, does the punishment fit the crime, right? Was, wasn't God a little bit harsh? Wasn't he a bit mean? But, but the problem here is that, is that Abraham, uh, that Adam and Eve, they knew what they were doing. right? They knew what they were doing. They knew fully well. They had full knowledge of what they were doing, and yet still they threw it in God's face. And it's it's kind of like, you know, Corrine, we know what she can do. We've seen her paint every day, every week, week in and week out, we see her paint, we know what she can do. And I ask her to paint something and she does a mediocre job. Right? What are you drawing, Corrine? <laughs> it's a beautiful face. We know what she can do, but she gives she gives a half story, right? And so when we get to Romans 3, verse 23, Paul brings two charges against him. He says, for all have sinned, for all have fallen short of the glory of God. So number one, we know that you do bad things, okay? But the second charge is that you haven't lived up to the standards of God. See, you were created in the image of God. And because you don't match up to the standards of God, That is why you stand condemned. That is why God's judgment is upon us. But here's the beautiful thing. See, Jesus was offered up as propitiation. And that very, very big word means averting the wrath of God by the offering of a gift. Jesus offered up himself on the cross for our sins because we we do a mediocre job. Romans 7, you know, Paul says, the things I I should do, I'm not doing, and the things that I'm not doing, that's what I do. And if I was to sit down with each and every one of you, you'd probably be able to write me a list of those things, right? Let me be honest, yeah? I I know what I should be doing, and I know what I shouldn't be doing. (laughs) I know that Corrine can draw better. Don't worry, I asked her to do a horrible job. Probably the weirdest brief that she's ever gotten in her life. (laughs) I'm not just disagreeing; she's following instructions. But um, but we know what she can do, right? We know what you're capable of, and yet we don't do it. Why? Because we are born into sin. Because we're full of sin. But the good news is this: is that in our place, where the wrath of God was justified, where the wrath of God is fulfilled as Jesus. Jesus stood on the cross and he bore his wrath on Jesus in our place. But the big question is why? Why would he do that? Why would he take somebody that is innocent and sacrifice it for the person that is guilty? In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son, into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Why would he do it? Because he loves you. Why would he, why would he take somebody that's innocent and sacrifice it for somebody that is guilty? Because he loves you. Because what we deserve is hell. And what we get in place should we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, as heaven. Sure, that's fantastic, Corinne, you can stop. <laughs> we get the idea. <laughs> Let's all stand together. Thank you for bearing with me this, this morning. I know this is a difficult topic, but but if i love you i need to i need we need to have these conversations right we need to and and what i'm hoping is not to be the final word on this conversation but I, but what i'm hoping is that you will discuss it amongst yourselves it's it's a big topic it's a difficult topic but what i want as as difficult as it is what i want to leave you with is how this topic as as terrible as it is as as maybe as uncomfortable as it's made you feel, that that uncomfortability, that, that tension within yourself, speaks ultimately to the love that God has for us. Because it's uncomfortable. It really is. It's uncomfortable to, to comprehend such a fate. And yet God says in his word that, that he desires that, that nobody perish and he's paid a very very big price in order to assure that but the it's now in your hands you see because hell is ultimately a place that is separated from god and the problem is not that it's so terrible but the problem is that that for some of us we want it we want a place where god is not We want a place where we can do what we want, where we don't have somebody running after us. C.S. Lewis has this great quote. It's the last slide. He says that in the end, there'll be two kinds of people. The one to whom they say to God, thy will be done. And to the other, God says to them, thy will be done. You see, if the problem is that If we want a place where God is not, where we can do what we want, where we can think the things that we want, where we can be in the relationships that we want apart from him, God's going to do just that. He's going to give us exactly what we want. He's going to give us a place that is completely apart from himself. That is hell, separation from God, the torment of which is beyond our comprehension. But to, today, because of because he loves us so much, he knows the terribleness of this, and he's saying to us, "Please do not choose that. Please, I've 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 made everything. I've made. I've paid the ultimate price that you don't have to go there. Please do not choose that. Choose me. Choose me. By the blood of my Son, I've made it possible. Let's all close our eyes. We're going to pray." Father, I just want to thank you that you are good. And I want to thank you that in your goodness and in your love that you have for us, you've made a way for us. Because, Father, we deserve the worst. And yet you took the worst on yourself, Jesus, on the cross. You took our place. And you bore the wrath of God for no other reason that you loved us. And as David said, who, who are we that you're so mindful of us? Who, who are we that you would pay such an ultimate price? It's beyond our comprehension. The love that you have for us is beyond our comprehension. And Father, I know that I'm, I'm in this time period where I've been given this grace to find you and to follow you, to seek you with all my heart. Father, forgive me where I've been distracted by so many things. Father, I want to give up everything for you. I want to follow you wherever it takes me because I know that your love is better than life. My God, my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I'll bless you as long as I live. And in your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich foods. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips. As I remember you upon my bed. As I meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you are my help. And in the shadow of your wings. I sing for joy. My soul clings to you, Father. Your right hand upholds me. But as for those who seek to destroy my life, they shall go down into the depths of the sea. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall exult in God, and all who swear by his name shall exult. For the mouth of liars will be stopped. Father, give us a desire to seek you, to love you, to know you, more than life itself. To to turn to somebody next to you and and pray together. And ask a very, very cliched question, but a very necessary question. If you die today, do you know where you're going? classic Billy Graham question. What happens if you die today? Do you know where you're going to go? We don't have to work it. We don't have to earn it. We just have to turn to Jesus. I'm going to be standing in front here. If you want prayer for anything, you're welcome to come in front. When you finish praying with somebody, you're welcome to go. The church service is done. Please stay for some tea and coffee at the back. I wish you all the best. God bless. Have a fantastic week. Please pray together.